One of the, <coughs> frankly, shocking things about Jesus, I think, is the number of people whom he turned away. Not just his enemies, <coughs> he did turn them away, but actually people who were starting out to follow him. On one occasion, for instance, um, in John's Gospel, John chapter 6, we see him, it seems, intentionally describing Christian discipleship in terms which were designed to be distasteful to the hearers. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. The language of eating flesh and drinking blood for a Jew was absolutely anathema. And it's not surprising that um, John records many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why did Jesus have such a bad strategy for gaining followers. If you read his story, frankly, it gets worse. He whittles his disciples down to twelve, and it's eleven because one of them betrayed him. Finally, it's none. Again and again, we see Jesus actually raising the bar really high. for the simple reason that there is real cost in following Jesus. He knew that. He didn't want people who were just casual followers. He knew that in time they would just fall away. He was not interested in them. One of the costs, though there are many, one of the costs that Christian believers have to accept is that from the moment they start following Christ until the moment they breathe their last on this earth, they will be met in the wider world with a mixture of confusion, consternation and, to be honest, very often frank distaste and opposition. Sometimes it will be muted, sometimes it will be very loud. Sometimes the voices of the wider world will lure us away with them. The Bible's absolutely clear about that, that actually if we are truly following Jesus, there will be a respect that people cannot, in all honesty, withhold from those Christians, uh, from us as Christians, but... In the end, it will be grudging respect. So count the cost, says Jesus. This is what he said in Luke chapter 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost and see if he has enough money to complete it? Or if he, sit, if he, lays, for if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will not he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose 20,000? 
And if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Anyone who's got any sense in this world counts the cost of what they're doing at the beginning. That's what Psalm 123 is all about. We began, didn't we, studying uh, uh, these uh, psalms last week. We're not going to be able to look at every one of the 15 songs of ascents, but we're trying to focus on a few of them and get a feel of the whole uh, thrust of them. As far as we can see, these psalms are designed for pilgrims. Three times a year, the Israelites had to go up in pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which was a pilgrimage to the temple, ultimately, which of course was a pilgrimage to the very dwelling place of God. And therefore, as Christians, we can read these pilgrim psalms as psalms for our life. We're not making uh, a pilgrimage to some particular place on earth. We're on a pilgrimage to meet with the living God in eternity. And the Psalms, the Songs of Ascent, they raise issues that are vitally important for us as pilgrim people. And I said last week, let me repeat, I want to encourage you over the summer to use these Songs of Ascent for a sort of spiritual health check um, in various ways. We're going to be looking at some of them in the, in the sermons. We're going to, home groups are going to be uh, looking at them. And also we're producing a booklet, a little booklet, um, for you to uh, take. Um, it'll be available in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Take on holiday with you to read and just think about these psalms. Psalms 120 to 122 were, were a first triplet of psalms. There are five sets of three, these psalms. They begin, each of the triplets, with a lament, a a complaint, a cry to God. The middle uh, one of the triplet each time is is a confession of God's help and God's uh, uh, salvation. And then the third of each triplet is always an expression of peace and contentment, having received help from God. And then the, the cycle goes through again. And that first triplet were all about getting us going, getting, getting us up on our feet as pilgrim people. Psalm 120 expressed distaste for the world. We need to fall out of love with the world if we're ever going to be on uh, looking to be pilgrims to eternity. And the one we focused on, Psalm 121, was um, focused on fear, anxiety. I lift my eyes to the hill. Where does my help come from? if I'm going to start on that pilgrimage. We saw last week in Psalm 121, our help comes from God, and if you are a Christian here this morning, he keeps you absolutely, utterly safe. Psalm 122 then is a sort of joyful, urgent um, uh, longing for Jerusalem. Jerusalem's such a great place, I can't wait to get there, says the psalmist. We need a hunger for the presence of God if we're going to follow Jesus. And now we start the second cycle and we're just going to focus on Psalm 123. Remember the first of each triplet is a lament. This is a complaint. This is a cry to God. And the cry to God 
is very real and very pertinent as the psalmist perhaps is walking out of his village, out of his town, starting to tramp the valleys of Palestine on the way to Jerusalem. There is opposition in the air. That's, that's the theme of this psalm. Not all of Israel was uh, faithful. Not all of Israel went on these pilgrimages. And there were always those who stood by as the humble pilgrims set off on their journey to Jerusalem and scoffed. This is the problem of Psalm 123. A problem that we need to take seriously. Christians, believers, will always be scorned. Believers will always be scorned. Verse 3. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt, we have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. It's very, very intense, dramatic language. We have endured, that phrase in the NIV, is really we, we're full up to the brim with. We've had our fill of this, God. People mocking us. People treating us with contempt twice there in verse 3 and in verse 4. That sense of disrespect, a lack of regard for these pilgrims. People treating us with, with ridicule. That has more, more of a sense of, of actually specific words of mocking or derision. They talk about us behind our backs. They make fun of us. They laugh. Who do it? The proud do it, he says in uh, verse 4. Or the complacent is probably a better, a better word. Those, those, who, those who are just satisfied with this world. They mock. The arrogant into power there. Those, the, the ruling classes, you could put it, or the ruling mood. It's not just people who have political power who rule. It's people who set the agenda for the way everybody thinks. Those people mock. Richard Dawkins has uh, recently said, uh, for instance, that he's decided that the only way to try to um, turn people away from this ridiculous belief in God is by displays of outright contempt. And um, to be honest, he is just a, an extreme grotesque caricature of a mood that is everywhere. And it hurts, doesn't it? I, I, I suspect it particularly hurts our culture, the culture we are in at the moment. 
because increasingly in British society, what other people think of us has become our, our ruling obsession. There's been um, a cultural progression over the last 50 years which has moved more and more and more towards um, people defining themselves by what other people think of them. To use a gross and oversimplified generation, uh, 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 generalisation, a generation above me, what they feared most was not playing their part in society. They're the generation who went to war. My generation, uh, probably their dominant fear is not having achieved anything with our lives. And that has shifted in a younger generation, so uh, those who study such things say, to a fear which is more dominated by not about not looking good. I remember, remember Douglas Coupland's um, book Generation X where he coined the term that has now become common uh, in our parlance. He said that his great, um, greatest ambition was to live hard, die young and leave a good-looking corpse. I think that's why Diana's was so iconic, her death so important for people because she encapsulated this sort of tension that so many people live with that she was beautiful on the outside and troubled on the inside. So many people engaged with that. sense of admiration that she'd managed to look good. A sense of sympathy and common feeling with her that underneath there was so much trouble. And maybe that's a reason why Michael Jackson's death has caused quite the stir that it, that, that it has this week. It really is um, extraordinary how dominant that news item has been because Michael Jackson was another of those people who in many ways encapsulated where our culture is at. Massively successful at putting on a good show so that we enormously admired his extraordinary dancing skills. This is made for dancing, isn't it? But I'm not going to demonstrate <laughs> my, my, lack of, uh, my lack of skill in that, that, that area. Um, go and watch a Michael Jackson video. I mean, just incredible. And yet... We knew, deeply troubled, and increasingly sort of displaying that troubled nature so that we didn't know whether to admire him, to pity him, or to revile him. Those characters display our cultural psyche. And therefore, people engage with them. For old Barack Obama tried to produce a balanced statement about Michael Jackson being a very gifted but uh, troubled individual, and it was completely drowned out by all the other stuff.
we are actually very dominated as a culture. Obviously different people into different extents, but culturally overall we are much more dominated by what people think of us than in previous generations. And here's the interesting thing. In that we are closer to the biblical world. It had a different shape in the Bible. It was um, um, uh, expressed slightly differently. But the pain and the anguish that uh, uh, biblical characters feel is not so much that they're wrong in a sort of scientist's type of way, but they feel an inner brokenness and fear of exposure. So, uh, actually the biblical world here speaks to us very, very clearly. I feel terrible, God, because people ridicule me, because people scorn me, because people disrespect me, because people revile me. Previous generation said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me to insulate themselves against that. And today our world uh, rightly says, that is false. Words do hurt. The Bible affirms that really strongly. It is a painful truth to live as a human being who in the end, at least in the areas that are deeply, most deeply precious to us, we're not respected. But if you're going to follow Jesus, that is what you have to live with. If they... uh, Uh, Persecute me, they will persecute you also, he said. Um, Most of you know that I was uh, um, trained as a vet and practised as a vet for a number of years before becoming a pastor. You know, it was was amazingly difficult for me to shed the mantle of being a a vet. I, I, I spent... I would just routinely, without really thinking of it, in social situations, when they said, what did I do? I'd say, oh, I'm a vet. And then I'd have to say, well, actually, no, I'm not. I'm a pastor now. And part of the reason for that was the different attitudes that people had towards me when I said I was a pastor. When, they, when you say you're a vet, you know, it, 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 immediately you sort of... Uh, uh, just a couple of rungs down from royalty in people's uh, minds. I mean, it really is the case. And they, they say, ooh, it's so difficult to get into college to do that, isn't it? Or, ooh, isn't the training hard? Or, that's amazing. All those sorts of things. When you say a, uh, you're a pastor, they sort of look at their shoes and shuffle. <laughs> they really do. And I, Vaughan Robertson and I were talking about this a while back and he said, and, um, and don't they rewind the conversation that they've had for the last uh, five minutes and think, what gaff did I make to this chap before I knew he was a pastor? 
That is just how people treat you. And it's really hard. An old school friend of mine, I had coffee with him a a few years ago, and he looked at me slightly bemused, and he said, uh, shifting from being a vet to to being a church minister, he said, isn't that like um, boarding a sinking ship? And there's so much else that goes on. I remember talking to a chap who was just completely ridiculed at work because he didn't sleep with his girlfriend. They couldn't believe it. Sought to embarrass him at every, uh, 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 every uh, opportunity. Or we're scorned because we just seem to be wasting our lives. Why bother on a lovely summer uh, Sunday morning to come and sit here and listen to a bloke go on for half an hour. Why bother to invest so much of your life in all that stuff? These days there's an increasing band of people who want to say it's that we're following completely intellectually discredited uh, superstition and for those for whom intellectual credibility is a big thing that, that scorn hits hard. We're held in contempt because we say our sexuality should be expressed heterosexually within marriage. We're held in contempt because, well, someone was explaining to me, we're held in contempt as well, partly because of the joy that seems to keep bursting through in Christians. An interesting one, which I didn't fully understand, but... That's why Christians sometimes get labelled happy-clappy and and so on. Because it's just not natural to keep being happy. We're held in in contempt because we believe in pie in the sky when we die and so on. The list goes on and on and on. And we develop, actually, specific strategies to avoid that. One strategy is just to stay quiet. Keep quiet about your faith, keep your head low and then nobody will notice you. Like um, an Israelite pilgrim perhaps deciding to slip out quietly as, uh, uh, in the dead of night as he uh, headed off for his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He just couldn't bear the thought of people standing at their doors and saying, what an idiot. Another strategy that we use is to try to make our faith respectable. And let me say, we must adorn the gospel. We must actually seek to demonstrate to people that this, that following Jesus is the way to become fully human. It's good. But sometimes that can become an idol. I remember someone repeating to me more, more, more than once something he'd heard in a sermon um, where uh, a preacher had said, you know, that he thought one of the great reasons why Christians are considered as idiots is because they are too often. And although that's true, I thought, why is that so precious for that person? You see, in the end, we can't shrug away from the fact. We can't shrink away from the fact that we'll be treated as idiots whether we are or not. 
the balance of scripture says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. In other words, we are to live good lives and we are to expect that people will be impressed by that, but we are also to expect that we will always be accused of doing wrong. Can't expect anything else. So we keep quiet. So we try to make our faith respectable when in the end it just can't be. Or we withdraw into an enclosed community. That's the sort of fundamentalist option. Yeah? We um, uh, uh, become inward looking. We seek the support just of our, our friends and we hide ourselves from the outside world, keeping our eccentric views completely um, private and safely within the confines of four walls. Our evangelism is to get people into that enclosed environment and tell them the gospel, but never actually to venture outside it. And that doesn't work either. The only way to live, if we are following Jesus, the only way to live is open, vulnerable exposure to a world that will scorn the message of the gospel. But we can't help that. We must just simply live as pilgrims. But it hurts. That's what this psalmist is saying. It hurts me. I'm full up to the back teeth with this. I've endured much. But he has an answer. The answer is about where we look to deal with that and how we look. Where we look to deal with that opposition is shown in verse 1. I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. Remember Psalm 121? I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Look to the hills and that, becomes, that is an expression of anxiety. Look to God, says this psalm. This is where you will find some answer. God who sits on a throne. A throne in heaven. We tend to look anywhere but God, to de- but to God, to deal with these things. If we're scorned, we look to ourselves. No, I, I must be better than they say, say I am. We look to our community. And both of those have their value, but the key thing is you will find the strength and the confidence and the courage to go on following Jesus if you look to God. He is in control. He is the merciful one. And then verse 2 tells you how to look. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. He's using two very similar images here to, to get across how to look. 
the, the image of a slave looking to their master, the image of a, of, a, um, of a maid looking to her mistress. And they look to their master or their mistress for two reasons. One is they look to the master or the mistress to find out what to do. I'm here, I'm ready to do your bidding. I'm looking to you to instruct me. I am your slave, I am your maid, I am your servant. And the other reason why those people look to their master or mistress is because that's where they find their provision. The provision in this case is mercy. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Here's the way to live then. Okay. Never, ever shrugging, uh, shrinking away from the fact that the world will scorn us. The world will laugh sometimes behind our backs. We can't do anything about that. We really can't. Finding our confidence and our satisfaction in God who is in control, he sits on a throne, who is full of mercy and living as those willing to serve him and looking to him for sustenance. So what I want to say to you this morning is reasonably simple. Do you do that? Specifically, do you pray? You just will not be able to follow Jesus unless you are a person of prayer. And yes, unless, like this psalmist, you take these things to the God who is in control and the God who is full of mercy and, 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 and pour them out to him and seek his comfort and his encouragement. If you do not pray, you will not be able to follow Jesus for long. It is absolutely simple. I am shocked by the number of people who get their primary sustenance from here. There's a lecturer in a theological college in Canada who's now been dead a number of years, a man called Klaus Bockmuehl, who used to start his lectures um, in that college uh, every day by just uh, saying, this is, this is what the Lord was speaking to me about in my quiet time this morning. And he'd just talk for two or three minutes about it before praying and starting the lecture properly. And sometimes he would stop and say, you're all listening too carefully. Hasn't the Lord been speaking to you? Do you pray? Have you taken those pains, those hurts, those difficulties, those frustrations, because there are numerous frustrations with living in this fallen world, have you taken them to him? Him whose throne is in heaven. He who is full of mercy. Do you pray?
I suspect that that is something that we need to work on together as a church, encouraging one another. Um, As I've been uh, reflecting on our life together as, uh, as a church, I suspect that may be something that we are a little bit lacking in. And I think I've said it before, let me say it again, I don't think we can organise that from the front. If there is not a mood amongst us to pray, if there is not a desire to go and be with the living God, then nothing that any leadership organises can do anything about that. If you have felt then some of these issues that this psalmist is talking about, if you felt that quiet opposition from the world, if you felt stung that people scorn you, have you gone alone to be with God and poured it out to him? Um, many of you will know I have a shed at the bottom of our garden where I do a lot of my work and where I regularly go to pray. And the walk down there just does separate myself from the world is just joyful. I always love going down there and spending time with God. Because I couldn't live a single day effectively without prayer. The great uh, Puritan preacher John Flavel wrote this. Prayer begets and maintains holy courage and magnanimity in evil times. When all things about you tend to discourage you, it is your being with Jesus that makes you bold. He who uses to be before a great God will not be afraid to look such little things as men in the face. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we ask that